This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. I'm Nga Tan from City University of New York. I'm Ellen Miser from the University of Hawaii. And today we're going to talk to Matt Raffalo of Google. Matt recently published Digital Divisions, How Schools Create Inequality in the Tech Era with the University of Chicago Press. It's a look at how social inequality permeates the use of classroom technology. We're talking education, technology, inequality, race, class, and much more. Stay tuned. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, you might remember Matt from last spring, uh, spring season when we did an episode on using technology in the classroom. Matt, the episode received a, a, a great response, and I really loved uh, hearing from you in a pretty hairy transition online. So uh, it's it's great to have you back uh, to talk about your new book, Digital Divisions, How Schools Create Inequality in the Tech Era with the University of Chicago Press. So uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome. For years, one of the big concerns surrounding inequality in technology involved questions about the digital divide in terms of differences to access in technology or exposure to basic tech skills. We were worried about whether kids from less wealthy families had sufficient access to things like computers or fast internet connections. And we were worried if they were learning how to use it. Like, uh, were they learning to type? Were they learning to program? Were they learning how to use basic internet functions? And this kind of digital device, it's still very much with us. That's for sure. You can see it with COVID. But Matt's book is interesting because you're arguing that there's there's more to the digital divide than these basic sort of access and, and usage uh, fa- uh, you know, skills. C- can you tell us a little bit more about, about your book? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, you're, you're 100% right on. I think a lot of the thinking around digital divides are pretty much, you know, that the holy grail is one laptop per child or or providing complete access to needed technologies and high quality internet in order to do well. Almost like kind of providing these, these access, you know, solving these access gaps is like, you know, the holy grail and that will magically see gains and achievement um, once those gaps are closed. Um, folks who study digital divides, you know, incidentally think of digital divides on three levels. There's not just one digital divide, there's three, which sounds very overwhelming now that I'm saying it out, <laughs> out loud. But the first is access. The second is digital skills, what you're referring to, Joe. Um, you know, can people use it? Which I actually think teachers at this moment are you know, no offense to all of us, are a little behind in some respects compared to a lot of young folks. And then the third, which is the bulk of the study of, of my book, is on unequal use. You know, even if people know how to use the technologies and have the technologies, people will use technologies in different ways. And unfortunately, I find that they're using them in ways that are different based on the race and class of their student body. And that's that's the bulk of the focus of the book. So can you give us maybe a story to flesh out this idea of this third divide? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love using the example of Minecraft um, because it epitomizes... <laughs> 
something from digital literacies research in kind of the education field that I'm using sociologically. Minecraft is essentially, well, a lot of parents are very familiar with this game, for better or for worse, when I've talked to them, but um, it's essentially a world-building game. There used to be games like this when I was a kid that were text-based, where people would build worlds with text, which sounds crazy. That's like a whole other discussion. But um, Minecraft is essentially, you know, as a player, you're dropped into this big, empty world, but you're given a set of tools to build. And the world is organized around building blocks, kind of like digital Legos. And as a player, you have to figure out how to assemble these Legos for different purposes. Um, It could be entirely creative. You could build little cities and towns. It could be a little more competitive. You could try to avoid, you know, something like a zombie apocalypse. Um, You know, there's many different ways to play. But the idea that learning scholars were so excited about with this game is that it was not too different from how, you know, we're expecting schools to teach digital skills, learning how to communicate with each other, learning how to create digital things. These are actually baked in to the very requirements for middle schools, for example, in teaching digital skills to to kids. And so I was like, holy cow, like, this could be a great way for kids to get ahead. If they're already playing around online, maybe schools could help them out. And as I talk about in the book, there's some theory from from cultural sociology and education that argues that this is the dilemma we're trying to solve. Um, Unequal childhoods, for example, um, which is at its heart a Bourdieuian take on educational inequity, argues that Working class kids just don't learn the same skills that wealthy kids do due to class inequities. And so wealthy kids will always, they show up at school on an unequal footing. And so this is like a case to really dig into that. Like, is that the case? Like, will we see if kids are all playing Minecraft and learning how to use digital technologies, will they get ahead? So I love using the the example of Minecraft because it came up in these schools a lot. So for example, how did this play out differently? Well, I had, I studied three middle schools. um, One I call Heathcliff Academy, which is a private school serving mostly wealthy white kids. Another Sheldon Junior High, which serves mostly Asian American uh, middle-class kids. And a third, Cesar Chavez Middle School, um, and these are all pseudonyms, of course, that serves mostly working class Latinx kids. And when Minecraft showed up at these schools, teachers treated it so differently. At Heathcliff, for example, you know, when I talked to teachers, they all thought their kids were basically like these future Steve Jobs, like, <laughs> like everything they're doing it with play online oh my God, it's gonna be so helpful in school. And so there was one you know, class that I observed where um, students were working independently on their iPads. And importantly, all the schools had tons of technology available to them to, the, to, to use. Um, they were playing around with their iPads, um, but, but on an assignment about you know, ancient Egypt, and it had nothing to do with video games. But one kid in the class that I was observing, I was like, wait a second, is this kid playing Minecraft in class? They were. And a teacher was walking around the room and saw that they were playing and like leaned over their shoulder and were like, just started asking them questions. Like, what are you doing? Like, wait, is that, is that like, is that from Egypt? Like, did you build 
like a pyramid? And they're like, yeah, like, how did you build that? They just started asking all these questions. And then after enough questions, he just kind of clapped his hands and was like, everybody, I want you to gather around, look at what, what this student's doing. And they turned the lesson into an activity around Minecraft. Um, one other example of what this was like somewhere else, and we could go into each of the schools, but at Sheldon, the school for mostly uh, middle-class Asian American students, um, mine, you know, teachers actually saw kids' skills from online play much differently. There, they assumed that play was threatening. It wasn't essential like at Heathcliff. It was threatening. And to explain it, um, they really drew on a lot of really unfair uh, characterizations, racialized assumptions about their students. And I'll be sharing stereotypes probably throughout this talk, caveat that, you know, they could um, sit, sit with people pretty uncomfortably, but I don't want to shy away from them because these were part of the, the life of these schools. Yeah, but you're teach, reporting what you saw, not exactly. what you think. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but, but honestly, over and over, teachers at Sheldon described their students as these hackers these, like, you know, they were raised by, by tiger moms who trapped them in their rooms to study. Like, these are the kind of assumptions they had and that these kids would do anything to do well with or without technology. And so mm -hmm. they, saw, they saw digital play then as a threat to their achievement. And so anytime a video game showed up, kids were playing Minecraft, whatever, it didn't matter what they were doing. They would snatch their phones away. They would give them detention, sometimes suspensions. They would put their phones in the phone box at the front of the school. Um, they they would do like even more than that. They would use their their wireless access at school to track the IP addresses of students to link all online behaviors to the individual students. Um, mm. There was one one example where they a, a teacher was proudly telling me that he printed out. Um, text messages that students were sending to one another to show the kid in class, I am collecting this, you are doing wrong, um, to scare them into realizing that what their, their play online is bad for school. And so those are just kind of two examples of how Minecraft can be treated differently. And really Minecraft represents play online, you know, the skills that kids have online and um, how teachers differently enable them by the race and class of their student body. I was thinking, you know, I, during my, um, the past couple of years for extra money on the side, I was subbing at the local school district, which is primarily like black and Latinx. It's about, it's actually, I think 80% Latinx students mm -hmm. and Minecraft was huge, huge, huge across elementary and middle school by high school. Of course they're doing other things, but elementary and middle school, it was a big thing for them. I mean, little kids would run around making, you know, paper swords that look like Minecraft swords because, you know, that's what they were, they were having fun with. Yeah. And it seems yep. like at least from my observations that around last year, this time Minecraft became kind of pushed aside by Fortnite and other new games. Um, so I'm curious, I'm curious what I mean, Fortnite is a far more uh, violent game than Minecraft. Minecraft, at least, like, there's some kind of Sims quality to it that I always thought was kind of fun. But, yeah, I do you have any insight into how the, how more violent games are treated by, yeah. by schools? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I definitely think when violent, like, like, games that teachers explicitly thought were violent or bad, like, for example, and I would still argue even in some of these violent, like, there's, 
there's, you know, there's clearly a qualitative difference between like Call of Duty and some other kind of games. Like, I still think there's some value in online communication and collaboration. Like, you could kind of make a case for it. But I think more importantly, teachers had assumptions about different types of games. And even at Heathcliff, the school that, you know, the, that served wealthy white students that valorized kids' digital skills, when a student was caught playing Grand Theft Auto, for example, mm -hmm. um, that became, I mean, they didn't suspend, they would have suspended the student if it was at a different school, but that became cause to call the parents and have a discussion, right. you know. So, mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do think like, importantly, what I mean by video games in this context is kids' digital interests or kids' interests broadly. It could be social media use, it could be gaming, it could be online writing or creativity. As a researcher of youth culture, you know, there's a rich history of scholarship on kids' interests being devalued depending on their race and class. So like Prudence Carter, Angela Valenzuela, like they've all written about how Black and Latinx kids, you know, interests, what, what they care about are systematically devalued by the mostly white middle-class educational institutions that run them. Um, and so I really draw on their work, extending it to just for the case of kids' digital interests to show how teachers, like really there's a mechanism at the teacher level that is, you know, they are gatekeeping whether those skills matter or not, whether those interests matter or not for learning. So there were new technologies that teachers pretty much agreed could be the gateway towards students uh, finding new ways to learn. Minecraft is one of them, and it, it does have a lot of sort of skill building aspects to it. But what you're saying is, even though the same technology was available, that technology was filtered through teachers' attitudes towards the children. And teachers created a classroom environment in which the students related to the technology differently. And that lesson, the lesson implicit in teachers' views of how they relate to the technology was, to your mind, putting them on different paths in life or training them to approach the world in a different way. Wealthy kids were taught that what they're doing is great and, you know, be a creator, uh, let your, you know, let your imagination run wild. And you're saying at the middle school of the middle class Asian students, they were like, listen, this is a, this is a waste of time. Get back to job skills. Don't don't create. Learn learn to program. Uh, is that am I getting sort of the gist of it? Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that resonates so well with is um, you know I'm really drawing on Bowles and Gintis's thinking around how schools are guiding students into different kind of economic career trajectories. I mean, they famously argued at a very high level. They weren't kind of on the ground like. I was or some other scholars who have studied this, um, that, you know, schools serving working class kids are socializing into them, you know, skills, perspectives that will really guide them on a path to working class jobs, whereas schools serving wealthy kids, they're treated like future CEOs, and that's guiding them towards wealthier you know, economic trajectories. I think where I try to intervene is to show how that occurs. It occurs through how teachers discipline the value 
of kids' creativity as expressed through these interests. And this is why, you know, you know, it sounds silly, like we're talking about video games, but it's really a way to excavate how Marxist thinking about the value of creativity in relation to labor can affect how kids see their own creative worth in institutions and later on in economic um, opportunity. If you, you know, even though um, at the school for serving mostly working class Latinx kids, even though they weren't, you know, in my study, they weren't they weren't treating them so uh, tough as tough as they did at Sheldon, the other the other school. They were still telling them that what their play amounted to was kind of irrelevant for school. Like it just didn't matter, you know. That's for fun. When you want to work, it's to learn basic skills to get a job someday. And that I think really shows the power of this thinking that we draw on from Marx um, in this work is that you know it's a it's a form of alienation is that you're telling kids that their creative selves will not help them you know in their labor outcomes. Whereas at Heathcliff, the school serving wealthy mostly wealthy white kids, they're told that who they are create creatively is essential to doing well in the world. And so everything these kids learn to do is, you know, digital or not, is in the service of bringing in their creative genius, which I think all kids have um, into their labor market trajectory. So, so, so you know, I, I try to divide the book up into, it really helped in my thinking in the book to divide it up into what the mechanisms are. The first bit is about how they do this. That's by gatekeeping whether kids' creativity matters or not to school. The second part, which was very complicated, was why, where are teachers getting these ideas from? And at a at a you know pretty basic level, I think, you know, I thought of it as attitudes for sure. You know, it's like they just have these assumptions about kids that shape how they're treating their play. But it does come from a pretty complex mixture, I found, of racial stereotypes that they have and workplace conditions that teachers deal with. Can you flesh that out for us? Like, what's the what's the, what's the causal story here in your mind? Sure. Yeah, this was one of the most complicated puzzles from to try to figure out. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that the literature from you know the the race literature and race and education literature clearly paints a picture that you know the mostly white teachers that are working at these schools have racial stereotypes. So that's, you know, pretty not controversial. What's also not controversial from this literature is that there's a lot of stereotypes. One of the things that really struck me when I was interviewing these teachers is that they had varied stereotypes about their students. But it was confusing too, because it seemed like in interviews, in different breaths when describing students they've worked with at different schools, they had different stereotypes about the same racial ethnic group of students that they were talking about, which was very confusing to me. How can you have as an individual a belief that Asian American students are model minorities? And then when describing students at another school that they're tiger mom raised hackers. And then in, the, you know, in describing Latinx students that they've taught at one school, they would describe them as future gang members, you know, whereas students at other schools, they would describe them as hardworking immigrants, just trying to get ahead. This seemed to not make sense at all to me. And what was particularly interesting is that they only 
used one stereotype to describe the students at their current school. So at Sheldon, you know, as I was describing before, their students were hackers. And at um, Chavez, their students were hardworking immigrants. And so I really was, you know, trying to figure out what, why it was that this was the case. And, you know, eventually I got so frustrated that I just point blank shared what I was finding with the teachers. I was like, what do you think about this? Why are you telling me these confusing things? And they really helped me figure it out. I think most most teachers consistent with what a lot of race scholars have said about how white people react when they're confronted with their biases kind of shut down. They were like, oh no, I don't have, I don't have biases. No, it's a, what are you talking about? But a few offered these really thoughtful takes that like, you know, I'll always remember this one quote from a teacher, I think at Chavez, who said, you know, Matt, you know, here at this school, it's like Disneyland compared to other schools I've taught at serving Latinx students, she meant. Um, you know, it's, you know, teachers treat each other with respect, and that trickles down into how we treat these students. It's all about what you surround these students with. If you surround them with one thing, they'll act differently. And I was like, holy cow, like, you know, ethnographers, a lot of us will be like, this is, I got to follow this lead. This is gold. So what I did then is I interrogated that at each school. I just started asking what it was like to work at these schools. And I mean, oh my gosh, the, you know, if, if you, if you ask teachers about this, they'll, they'll regale you with stories about what it's like to work. Some places were like hell holes. Some places were like Disneyland. And indeed I found similar patterns in workplace culture and a literature on workplaces that was, that's really not been adapted very well to study race. And I know you had Victor Ray on, um, he would agree. Um, and his work really helped, uh, my thinking here too. But what I find is right. that each school had different workplace cultures that differently guided the quote unquote appropriate stereotype that teachers drew on to explain how they interacted with students. So as one example at Sheldon, teachers there described it as a hellhole. They said, you know, it, you know, the teachers described other, you know, women there in particular, it's like mean girls. They won't let you sit with them at lunch. Um, it was really every man for himself. You know, a lot of gendered terminology there, but but you know that was the work. What it was like to work there, and so that every man for himself dynamic among faculty, I find shaped um, in a way that wasn't very deliberative. It was kind of automatic in terms of um, how culture worked here. But you know that every man for himself workplace dynamic enabled a a perception of their Asian American students and their small group of uh, Latinx students as threats rather than hardworking immigrants or model minorities. Um, similarly at Chavez, um, this worked, uh, this was at play as well. Um, but faculty there, it, it was like a family. They described it as, you know, so collaborative, so kind to faculty would help one another. And that trickled into how they treated their students too. But that family dynamic enabled them to see their mostly Latinx students as hardworking immigrants. Something like a future gang member stereotype was just inaccessible at an environment like that. Um, and so uh, what I observed is that there's this super interesting interaction between workplace culture and mm -hmm. 
the types of racial stereotypes, racialized and class kind of entangled stereotypes that teachers draw on to see their students' digital play. You know, it reminds me of, I remember that study a few years ago on mice, like where if the researcher would induce stress in a mouse, that that mouse would lash out on other mice and the act of lashing out against weaker mice had some type of homeostatic neurochemical, uh, you know, uh, effect. Like people achieve balance by being tweaked, by tweaking those below them. And somehow it's believed that I remember that say, I wish I could look, uh, I wish I had it on the, on the tip of my head, but you know what else I'm wondering about? Like as somebody who's had exposure as a parent to a few different schools, like my children go to private school now. Uh, and, uh, I've had some exposure to, uh, the public school system here. And I know of the New York city system in, I wonder if the objective conditions that teachers work in, or like the objective situation that sustains the organization and shapes policy plays a role here. For example, many private schools are very worried about losing students. Most private schools rely on each parent to continue contributing and they always need the parents money. Mm -hmm. And there's a very strong ethic of customer satisfaction. And a lot of these parents harbor, like many parents think their children are the greatest people on earth. And they harbor the attitude that if my child is not being taught the way I want, I will take my money elsewhere. Uh, I, in, I live in, a wealthy small town and I'm a white person. Uh, and socially in this context, there's very few degrees of separation between me and school board members, or as a white person, I feel very confident in my ability to stand up at a meeting and talk about how the school wrongs my child and see a room full of white people be able to sympathize with me because they too are white and maybe they imagine their children in the same situation. Under both circumstances, with money or with race, I'm able to leverage power over my teachers and be more of a threat and be in a greater position to demand, uh, demand uh, you know, that my children be treated as special. Uh, when I contrast that with my experience working at, at CUNY, which is very attuned to the needs of uh, students in needs, but like there's no leverage that the our customers, our clients have over us. We're publicly funded. So what, what do you think of that idea? Like that the power dynamic of the parent over the uh, teacher using cultural or economic capital as a rule here? Yeah, I, I think it's essential. I think, especially in the case of Heathcliff, the private school that I studied, you know, I, I did do a lot of work to try to minimize, you know, all the different factors that could shape what I observed at these schools. So I did, you know, each of the schools, private or public, had a lot of technology, they had a vision for how to, you know, enable technology use. Testing was miraculously not an issue the year I was there um, because of a rollout of a new, you know, computerized exam. But Dis even despite that, I found that at Heathcliff, parents really ruled the land. They really, really ruled the land in ways that trickled into the classroom. And even though at, at other schools, specifically at Sheldon, the school of mostly Asian American middle class kids, parents there tried to get involved, but teachers would engage in all sorts of different tactics to diminish the power that they had 
um, in ways that were not equal at, at Heathcliff. I mean, one of the things that I loved just kind of narratively hearing teachers describe at Heathcliff was that they talked about, um, how did they put it? Um, like, like baking, like parents baking as <laughs> one of the mechanisms by which parents asserted their control day to day in the classroom. So for example, teachers or parents all the time would say like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in cupcakes for, remember these are middle school kids. So I'm going to bring in cupcakes to the class and bring in, in um, brownies, things like that. They would always do it unannounced. They would just show up in the class and put them in, the, in the, like literally while teachers are doing their work. And really there was nothing the teachers could could do about it because at face value, they're just bringing in food. But teachers would also tell me that these are surveillance mechanisms for the parents to use to kind of keep an eye on what their teachers are doing. And the effect of that, I heard all these examples and it really trickled into technology use too. If they didn't observe teachers using the latest and greatest, you know, kind of exciting ways to use tech in the classroom, or they weren't treating their kids like future Steve Jobs, they would say something to the principal it would end up getting to the teacher, put them on blast. Teachers would be pitted against each other for not doing right by their kids. And so all of that amounted to a workplace culture of treating kids like elites. If you mm -hmm. didn't, as a teacher, treat these children like elites, down to literally, I observed teachers you know, saying, my little historians, my little scientists, <laughs> like that would be what they do in class, which is like kind of idyllic as a kid. Let's be real. I think that's pretty cool. But, you know, at a meta level, only these kind of wealthy white kids are getting that experience and teachers are being pressured to doing it because parents are waving their influence over them. What's that? What was that? Remember that finding? That, oh, darn. I'm just coming up so bad with the citations. But remember that finding a few years ago? It was an experiment that argued that it was the real difference with class was the confidence projected and people of higher social classes or in privileged status categories like men or white people were more likely to present their ideas or thoughts as authoritative and people in the room would use the authoritative tone or manner to infer competency uh, uh, do you remember? Do you remember that finding? So it's sort of, sort of like that. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, Bordeauxians who try to map a lot of that work out in the classroom, I think, have done a really good job showing that in practice. Like, I mean, I have to tout Jess Calarco's work on yeah, just, sure. you know, kids knowing when and how to ask questions in class. Like, all of that stuff really matters and systematically privileges. Um, you know, wealthy kids, I would argue wealthy white kids uh, from from my work. But one of the things that I add to that thinking is that schools also um, provide a socialization process that instills that confidence in kids too. I mean, when I interviewed these eighth graders, I interviewed eighth graders at the end of my study just to kind of get a sense of how their four years of schooling at each of these schools shaped them. And even at Heathcliff, the kids, you know, the mostly wealthy white kids that went there talked about how they would show up and like having to speak with confidence 
about themselves, about their digital play in the classroom was really scary. I mean, some of them, they talked about crying after how they had, I mean, these are fifth graders, remember, crying after they had to go up in front of the classroom and like, like show themselves and share their work and teach, but teachers would relentlessly make them practice to go up in front of the screen, use a smart board, an interactive smart board to show themselves, show their creativity. And that was a socialization process that helped kids develop that confidence with digital tools in practice. And this is, I think, something that's missing from a lot of Bordeauxian work that I think over-focuses on parents and what happens at home. Because yes, parents are teaching their kids all sorts of things, but they but kids still have to practice doing those, exerting those habits and skills in the classroom environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the classroom environment, there's still a process of like trying it out. And and a lot of that depends on the feedback that you get from teachers. And as I show, they're getting very different messaging from teachers depending on um, the race and class population of the of the school. See, that's a very profound insight to me because you can teach your children what you want as strategies at home. The question is, is when you send them out, the, out into the world to deploy these strategies, mm -hmm. does their firsthand experience validate the message that you're smart, your ideas are great? And if you set your kid in an environment where every you know thought that crosses their mind gets applause, <laughs> they'll be like, wow, this is, I'm really good at making ideas. <laughs> You know, yes. and I, yep. I could see, I could see the same thing happening uh, in a reverse situation where a parent at home says, you know, you can be anything and just be forthright with your ideas. And if they go to school and the teacher doesn't reward them, it's like a disconfirmation. Like if there's one thing I know with a parent is, as a parent is kids don't take your life's lessons at face value. They go out and check them and they're very happy when your, your advice fails. So it's like, they're looking to refute your theories. I was about to ask a, a similar question. It seems to me that the kids in this Sheldon school have some kind of dissonance, you know, like it's, there, there seems to be the, the, the parents' um, peace involvement in the school is missing. And then you, as you said, some of them are also having their cell phone IPs tracked, right? So there's literally like a, 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 a how in, interfere in the kid's privacy. And I if I were their parents, I would definitely interfere. I would go to the school and saying that you are tracking my kid's um, cell phone. This 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 sounds dodgy, you know? And and somehow uh, somehow the parents are not interfering. So I'm I'm curious like what is that? Like are these teachers exercising as an extension of the stereotype of the tiger moms on the kids? That's, that's literally the image that I had in mind when you were talking that the, the teachers are more strict with these, these Asian kids than others. Yeah, I think, um, I think at Sheldon specifically, where teachers were felt like it was every man for himself among each other. And they, you know, these white teachers then drew on stereotypes of Asian American students as tiger mom raised hackers and not model minorities as they've done elsewhere, that they then applied that to the kids and interactions with those students and their families. And I think importantly, um, this example 
counters the notion of technological determinism, um, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of us as sociologists really fall into this, like not nuanced thinking that like technology just does what technology does. If I have a laptop, it will be used in a certain way. No. Um, sociological phenomena like that, like those perceptions of kids shapes this threat orientation and stereotype of Asian American kids, that shapes the very meaning and value of all the digital tools at teachers' disposal. That shapes how they have decided to use internet access as surveillance tools. That shapes, um, one of the things I found so fascinating was I remember when I showed up at Sheldon, I was like, why don't teachers have smart boards at this school, smart boards being these like newfangled blackboards that are digitized and you can do all sorts of things. I was like, is it because of money? And I found no, like the, you know, they had plenty of uh, funding for technology available at this school. The reason why they didn't buy smart boards is because they wanted to encourage teachers to get up away from the front of the room and walk around and look at what students are doing on their devices. They wanted to use technologies for that purpose. So even the purchase and use of digital tools was for that um, purpose. I mean, I think not, I think you bring up um, a really good point is that like, oh my gosh, like how do parents not know about this stuff? Or like they're using all these, like we, we are in an environment now where there isn't a lot of attention to what schools are doing with these technologies, how they're using them with kids, what's happening with students' data. I mean, there just isn't a lot of discussion um, and education around this. And I think it's vitally important. I think um, uh, we, we're just, you know, I, I'm just not seeing, I'm not seeing a lot of, uh, in particular, communication to parents and kids about how they are using their tools and in the ways that they are. But even if like, even imagine a, a classroom where the teacher is encouraging students to be creative, to create intellectual property as opposed to implement other people's plans. Like I would wager that a students who have a pen and paper classroom and that type of teaching would be better off than those who are teaching students to basically, you know, fulfill someone else's job orders with like the best computers in front of them. No, like what, what do you feel about the balance between the ability to use technology and the, the message implicit in the education that sort of assigns you a role in the social hierarchy? It's almost like they feel like two independent factors almost, are they? I don't, I don't know. I think, I think that whether or not you are using technology in the classroom. And, you know, this was pre-COVID when I was studying this stuff. Now it's like you kind of have to, to do it. Right. But what, you know, when the discussion is whether or not you use technology in the classroom, I'm a little indifferent, you know? I, I think I think what matters most is teaching kids that who they are creatively, whether it be with a pen and paper or with an iPad or laptop, is a valuable asset to their trajectory as a human being, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I think that matters more than, you know, laboring over, you know, which technologies we use or how we integrate mm-hmm. them in, in class. 
And I don't think I don't think you know as much as much as there's been done in the education space about interest-driven learning is usually what it's called. Like a lot, you know, I it's not done in practice. And I think what's especially harrowing about this is interest-driven learn driven learning is really only seen as feasible or doable when you're serving white kids. Um, the interests of minoritized students are usually seen as threatening or irrelevant to school. Um, and this has been documented for a very long time. Uh, and I think if we can address that, uh, if we can address the kind of biases that you know the mostly white teachers have in schools, if we can address the workplace conditions that teachers are dealing with so that they feel safe, you know, that, so that teachers themselves feel safe and enabled to confront, you know, uh, racism that they're a part of and, and that they enable and that all of us are exposed to in our society, then I think that will help kids, you know, irrespective of tech. Do you really think that it's about teachers feeling safe, though? Because, like, they seem quite vulnerable in the private school context. A parent can really wreak havoc on a teacher's career. And in the context of a public school, especially if they're unionized, an individual parent presents far less a, a personal threat. An angry parent would present far less of a personal threat yep. to a teacher. I think my, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, I think, I think my, how I would answer it focuses on, if we're focusing on kids and differences in not just class, but in race and how kids are treated, what are the conditions that teachers need to be able to not have such horrible, you know, racial stereotypes employed in the classroom? Okay. To me, yeah. that's the end goal. And if that's the case, then I would expect from my work that we would need to create workplace conditions, whether it be family-like safety or whether it be, you know, really held to it by the parents, uh, the private school, whatever it is at the workplace that enables them to have discussions, professional development experiences that enable them to confront racial biases. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a whole lot of work out there already on the effectiveness of diversity programs and confronting implicit biases and all of that stuff. And I would really defer to those scholars and their recommendations for how to effectively create an environment for that. But I think for my work, I we just need to create an environment where white people can confront the racial stereotypes that they have. Uh, they have and address them. I mean, another twist on this too is let's change the demographic of teachers in schools. Why are we still a majority white teaching population that doesn't match the student populations that are being taught? Um, that could be another avenue, uh, again, where yeah. the goal is to ensure that all kids, no matter their race, ethnicity, or class are being treated fairly. Um, that that's kind of my long-winded take on on your I think very good question. You know that the idea that you were conveying in the book, though the i uh, that kids that are higher on the social hierarchy are being encouraged to be intellectual property producers, and as you move further down, students are being pushed more to implement plans and consume plans was was really, really striking. And it, it makes me think that 
the information economy is, is, you know, has a lot less to do with computing and technology than we might realize. Uh, a lot of it is sort of just the reproduction of, you know, old, you know, sort of old differences and what people are encouraged to do. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's more of us studying digital tech now among sociologists than there was even when I was in graduate school five or six years ago. But mm -hmm. I remember, I remember as a as a first year grad student telling people I wanted to study tech, and everybody was like, "Oh, don't study digital technology. Digital technology is just a newfangled thing. We got to focus on the <laughs> sociology, on the sociological phenomena." And I resisted that for so long, but. You know, at a certain point in my analysis, I was like, oh, man, they're right. It is. There's, you know, <laughs> social reproduction. All these theories really do uh, are inflected in the very same uses of, of technology that we're talking about today. Um, mm. I will say, though, that some differences that are really worth calling out and that I really think sociologists should study is the extent to which these social forces we've studied for a very long time are affecting how people are participating online. Mm -hmm. um, because that I think is something that's a little different. And I, I rest on the shoulders of scholars from communications departments and informatics departments who've, who talk about the internet today, not as a singular public to draw on Habermas, but as, as a series of online publics, basically meaning that there's many stages online. You could be playing around on TikTok. You could be searching, you know, uh, contemporary GeoCities, you know, like a, an online forum, a website. That what you do in one place online is a stage, but it can really bleed into context. It can it can be shared. That data is durable, and so I think there's a new environment by which sociological phenomena that we study can be mapped to what digital participation looks like. And to, to kind of ground it in this book, you know, I map out how schools are gatekeeping in ways that, you know, at, you know, Heathcliff, their digital interests are essential. At Sheldon, they're threatening. And at Chavez, they're irrelevant and they're serving different race and class populations. What I find with interviews with eighth graders of each of these schools is that they're internalizing this messaging in ways that shape how they then decide to participate online, whether or not that they're at school. So at Heathcliff, the school serving mostly wealthy white kids, where they're teaching kids that their, their creativity is essential, these kids des describe their digital participation as essential to achievement. And what that looked like is that they would use Instagram, um, Twitter, um, hell, even, apologies, shouldn't be swearing. They would use Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook as a way to demonstrate their worth to future colleges and employers. I mean, they would, these kids even had link, eighth graders had LinkedIn accounts for kind of showing their worth um, in the hopes that someday a college admissions official will see them and think that they're valuable. Um, skip mm -hmm. to, to other schools uh, like Chavez, where they told them that what they did online was irrelevant. They would then play online thinking that what they did didn't matter to schools. And so um, they're not curating a digital resume at all. And so I think 
I think that there's a lot of ripe uh, area for study for how this digital participation might uh, be affected by social forces that sociologists have been studying for a very long time. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to Matt Raffalo from Google. His book is Digital Divisions, How Schools Create Inequality in the Tech Era with the University of Chicago Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at SociAnnex. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Music is by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Ellen Miser and Natan, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>